Hello and welcome to Checked Out. We're broadcasting from Euclid Public Library in beautiful Euclid, Ohio. I'm Casey Armstrong, Director of the Library. And I'm Mike Stein, Assistant Manager of Adult Services. We talk about our favorite books, movies, services, and events with our favorite people and our favorite community. Each podcast will feature a theme. Today we're talking about butterflies and how to keep them fluttering in our backyards and throughout the city. Our special guest is Marcy Leininger, an ecological services biologist and coordinator for the Ohio Pollinator Habitat Initiative. Marcy will be part of a monthly series of programs here at the library beginning in May. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get right into it, Marcy. You'll be here in mid-May to kick off a monthly series on butterflies. What will people learn about during this program? So the first program is going to be about resources that can be provided to uh, butterflies, bees, other pollinators. Part of the process and the programming in May, it looks like we're going to be giving out some milkweed seeds (laughs) to those who stop by the library. That milkweed is actually Ohio harvested milkweed. Um, Okay. Ohio Pollinator Habitat Initiative, along with multiple other partners in the state of Ohio, work together on a huge scale to go out and collect milkweed pods. And it's a community program where we have the Soil and Water Districts and other groups, libraries and schools in different cities um, and different counties, you know, ask for the community to go out and collect milkweed pods. We provide guidance on when to collect them, what they should look like, how to collect them. And we provide drop-off areas for community members to drop off milkweed pods. And then we go around and collect all those pods. And then they go into a huge uh, bulk. You know, we divide it in like Southern Ohio or, you know, the Southern part of Ohio and the Northern part of Ohio. And so that way we know we're being regionally specific, um, but we get those into huge piles. And then we have processing facilities that help process the pods, meaning they take the seeds out of the pods. And so all we have are seeds. And then once that process is done, which is happening right now, it should be finished probably by the end of next month. Then we have milkweed seed that we redistribute back out for anything from outreach and education programs like this one, or for larger undertakings and plantings uh, that groups want to include into a seed mix or do just monarch waste stations. Um, So we have milkweed that we will be providing to uh, the community during our programs uh, for the library that was harvested in Ohio. And not a lot of people know, but water is essential, not just for us, but it's also essential for pollinators. And so they need water just like we do. And one of the activities we're going to do is to create puddling stations. And essentially what we'll do is we're going to use um, certain planter resources uh, that you would use for plants. and create puddle stations by adding sand and different rocks and stones and then water. And those can be set out in your flower bed or in your garden. And bees or butterflies will stop intermittently on those areas to puddle, essentially drink water. I'm just so fascinated by this topic. But before we get into more details about butterflies, can you first explain what is it is a pollinator. What does that mean and why is it important? So pollinators are super, super important. Um, not only do they contribute to the food chain in nature, um, but they also contribute to agricultural production 
and Ohio being an agricultural state, it's vital for us to make sure and doing all we can where we can for pollinators in the state of Ohio. Uh, so that way we're helping our agricultural community bolster those numbers of resources we need like soybeans in the state of Ohio. So we need the pollinators in order to make sure we can continue to eat. <laughs> Correct. Yes. So it's a huge connection there. Yes. So what types of butterflies are common to the greater Cleveland area? Oh, there's all kinds of butterflies. Um, the initiative that I work for started off because of the issues with the monarch butterfly. Um, the monarch butterflies petitioned to be federally listed under the Endangered Species Act in 2015. And so when that happened, we started thinking about how we could have a more proactive response to that news of the monarch butterfly instead of a reactive response where we would just wait and see, hey, is this gonna get listed? Instead, we said, we know that it's been peti petitioned to be federally listed. Therefore, we know that it's in trouble. Let's start doing things now before we even know if it's going to get listed to change our practices and to start trying to restore these habitats in at least the state of Ohio uh, to try and help the monarch. And so if you think of the monarch as a flagship species, there's a whole host of other species that fall under the monarch butterfly that use those same spaces. So essentially, if you're doing something good for monarchs, you're helping a whole host of other pollinators. Um, may it be managed honeybees, native bumblebees, um, you know, swallowtails, buckeyes, you know, um, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of butterflies. <laughs> I mean, I can't list them all right now. Um, but, you know, you'll, you'll see some of your most common ones are the clouded sulfur that you're going to see out in the, the fields and the yards and your cabbage whites. Um, they're all essential for pollination. I don't think I really knew of butterflies as pollinators. Bees, I think pretty much everybody knows that, that those are pollinators, but butterflies, I never really realized that they do that. And then you mentioned the monarch butterfly since 2015 is kind of an endangered species. That's probably the most well-known North American butterfly. Um, and if they're in decline, how bad is that problem? And if we can't get them to come back to the levels they were at, <coughs> then what does that mean? Well, so, and that's, that's why when we started this initiative, it, we knew that it couldn't be just about monarchs. It had to be about monarchs and other pollinators. Um, and so that's why we're the Ohio Pollinator Habitat Initiative. And we should constantly be initiating opportunities to do good things for both monarchs and other pollinators that share those same habitats. And essentially, by helping monarchs and other pollinators, you're helping birds, you're helping grassland birds who are also in decline. You're helping other mammals, terrestrial mammals, all these all these different species. They all utilize these habitats. These habitats are overlapping and have different structures and components that all these things need. You know, whether you're, a, a, you know, a ground squirrel, whether you're, a, you know, a meadow lark, whether you're a monarch, whether you're a leaf skipper, you know, all shape sizes, they're all there. Um, and, and when you can start connecting those dots. Uh, then you're actually making this greater effort to help wildlife in general. So Marcy, you mentioned uh, the organization you work for. So let's step back a little bit. I want to hear more about, you said Ohio Pollinators. Is that the correct name? Ohio Pollinator Habitat Initiative. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about uh, that organization, your role there. 
and what you guys are doing to get us out and get us aware, educated, and healthy. Sure. So Ohio Pollinator Habitat Initiative is essentially um, anybody in the state of Ohio. It's a it's a partnership throughout the state of Ohio. We also have surrounding partners and regional areas, you know, outside states that reach out to us who may not have a program or a group in their state to reach out to for technical assistance. And those partners uh, could include ODNR. Um, it can include the Ohio Federation of Soil and Water Districts. It can include Pheasants Forever. It can include um, ODOT. I mean, it can include, the list can go on and on about who it could include and who it does include um, in regard to doing good things for pollinators in the state of Ohio, which essentially not only is doing good things for pollinators and wildlife, but we start to think about the structure of the plants, their native plants in the state of Ohio. The root systems are very good root systems. We're starting to, you know, then help with water quality. We're starting to help with soil tillage. We're starting to help with, you know, there's a myriad of things that just by trying to restore pockets of areas in Ohio back to native habitat, essentially to help pollinators, but we're doing so much more by just doing that act. So you mentioned for your program, you're going to be showing people how to build puddle stations is one of the things and that if you put that in your yard, that'll attract bees and butterflies. Um, what other things can we do to help? Are there certain plants you can put in your yard to attract butterflies? Uh, yes. Short -term or long -term? There's lots of different plants that you can choose from. Um, you know, for monarchs and, and there's multiple other butterflies, it's, also good to know like who might you want to attract to your yard because some butterflies need a host plant. So for monarchs, they will only lay their eggs on milkweed. That's the only plant that they'll lay their eggs on. And that's the only plant that the caterpillars will rear on. The only, they'll eat the leaves and the stems. And then once they go into their chrysalis and then they emerge as a monarch butterfly, at that point, there's a multitude of nectar plants that they can choose from. So having what we usually recommend is if you know you want to attract a specific, you know, butterfly to your, to your yard, um, look into what their host plant is first, and then also provide nectar resources and pollinating resources for those butterflies, which is going to help a multitude of other butterflies um, that stop by your yard. So you're creating these stopover habitats, and those can include anything from black-eyed Susan, brown-eyed Susan, um, wild bergamot, um, coneflower. I mean, all these typical things that most people know um, that are pretty hardy and do well in the yard. And you can get into even more specific uh, types of, of flowers, but just making sure you're providing spring, summer, and fall, at least three different kinds of flowering, blooming plants during those seasons so that you're providing adversity of food for these pollinators throughout the season before they end up going dormant again. Marcy, you just, you know so much about this topic. Can you, before I have a question about damage, but I'm, I'm interested in your background a little bit. Can you first tell us about, you know, your educational background, how you came to this field of study? And then is it too late? Is there anything that, you know, is it too late to try to reverse the damage? 
it's never too late to reverse the damage. Um, so my my background, which kind of ties into my background, when I say it's never too late, I actually was a surgery technician for 10 years before I became a biologist. Um, I just decided that that's what was in my heart and that's what I wanted to do. So I went back to school uh, when I was around 30 and went back to grad school and just worked really, really hard to you know, kind of do what I'm doing now. And it, it took a lot of different paths, a lot of different turns uh, to get here. So I was a, uh, I'm a graduate of the Ohio State Masters of Environmental and Natural Resources program. Um, Stacy Finneran is my program director. Uh, Craig Davis was my previous program director and they helped give me excellent guidance through my journey through grad school. Um, and so when I graduated, you know, was amazing. So just before I graduated, I ended up getting an opportunity to work with ODOT um, in their ecological services program. And just just before I graduated, I had a great opportunity with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to be one of their state transportation liaisons. Um, and so I would help with endangered species coordination at that level. Um, and then after I left that position, I came back to ODOT and serviced their district environmental coordinator for central Ohio. Um, and so still also doing endangered species coordination, but a myriad of other things to make sure that ODOT's compliant. Um, so it really is just a lot of work and a lot of effort, but it's never too late to one, go back to school and be what you wanna be and make a difference, whether it means going back to school or whether it means, hey, you're just gonna do something new, you wanna do something good. And I got into, the monarch, I got into pollinators because it just seemed like the best opportunity to have the most effect I possibly could out on the landscape and do the best thing I could for Ohio, which is my home state. So why does ODOT have a biology division? I mean, ODOT is roads and maintaining the roads and keeping them clear and fixing them. How does that relate to biology? Ah. That's a great question. So not a lot of people know that ODOT has 12 districts and in each district we have at least two biologists who help do coordination with different agencies and for natural resources for almost every project we have out there. Um, we look at what our impacts might be. And so you need to have, uh, for NEPA coordination, you need to have uh, an experienced biologist who understands NEPA. Marcy, what is NEPA? It's the National Environmental Policy Act. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that it's never too late to go back to school and make a difference. I know that the profession of librarianship is typically a second career choice for many people. Um, most of us do something else and then we go back at a later date and get our master's degree and become librarians. So that's our mutual connection there, Marcy. But because Mike and I are librarians, we can't um, finish this conversation without asking you for your recommendations on books. What uh, types of books or if you have any particular titles that you would recommend, what should we be reading on this topic? Oh, well, that is a great question. I don't think I can give the best answer because I typically rely on field guides. <laughs> um, so That's all right. We can read a field guide. <laughs> I was a fellow with the Audubon Society um, when I was in grad school, and I really love my Crosley ID guides. Um, they're, they're very thorough, um, you know, bird guides or I, there's, there's a ton of bird guides out there. Um, but the thing that I like about the Crosley, 
uh, field guide is it, it has some really nice photos and pictures and drawings and it shows um, different different kinds of ways that you can, you know, see what a bird is from a silhouette um, from different angles. Um, Peterson field guide is really good. Peterson is uh, a more uh, accessible field guide that you can actually take out in the field with you. Um, they come a little bit smaller. Crosley is a little bit bigger. Um, you know, so if you look up field guides, there's lots and lots of them, but I would say Peterson and Crosley are the ones that I usually go to um, for, for good field guides. And, and Peterson has, you know, so many wildflowers and birds and mammals and insects and, and they're really, they're really detailed. So they can kind of get into like, well, what's the difference between exoskeletons of these two different species? And, you know, this one's got cross hatching and this one doesn't. And <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, Casey, if we don't already have those books here at the library, we're going to have to order them, get them in for our program. Absolutely, absolutely. And well, when we the program series starts in May, we'll be sure to put out a display of books for folks to check out and learn more about butterflies and other pollinators. If uh, I go out in my backyard, how do biologists know if I go out in my backyard and look and I see five butterflies floating around? How do I know that? How, how do you know that they're going extinct, that there are lesser numbers? I see five in my backyard and, oh, there should be eight. There should be 10 or at this time. How do you guys know that they're going extinct? How is it? How do you figure well, out? That's a, that's a huge a bigger undertaking than, than this conversation. So there's um, lots of dedicated biologists who keep track of those populations. And I will say that citizen science has been a super, super helpful tool for these larger undertakings to look at national population status for species that might be going extinct um, and helping to provide pictures and, you know, where was it ID'd at? So um, if you like the the iNaturalist app, which uh, I'm a fan of, I go in and because I have a booming social life, I like to crawl around in my yard and take pictures of insects and butterflies and, you know, birds and, you know, listen for bird calls. And I'll upload those findings if I can get a picture um, and I can get a, or I can record a sound of a bird. I'll upload those to my iNaturalist app. And there's a whole bunch of identifi identification biologists who are attached to that, who will help say, yes, you're correct, that's what this is. And then they start to log that data, like, hey, this was found here at this date at this time, we actually had five here. And so that data starts to collect over time. And then you can look at trends. Hey, is this population going up? Is it staying the same? Is it dropping? And you can look at that on a national level. So citizen science has been hugely important to being able to capture some of these numbers uh, and also doing intensive searches. Um, for example, Ohio Department of Transportation and Ohio State and Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and I believe Akron University worked on a project monitoring for the Rusty Patch Bumblebee here in Ohio specifically because we wanted to know if it was out there and if it was, you know, should we be changing some of our practices for management of roadsides because of it? Um, so you can have those intensive searches and certain state-specific uh, reasoning for certain species. So there, there's a multitude of ways that we can keep track of those things, um, but it is a large undertaking. Well, that all sounds great. I'm really looking forward to these programs now that you've told us about it, things that I never really 
knew much about before, but now they sound really interesting. So thank you very much for joining us and looking forward to those programs, Marcy. Hey, thanks so much. I'm really excited, guys. And this is a great opportunity for everybody. And now, the news you cannot use. Dylan Helbig had a lifelong dream come true recently when he wrote and drew his own 81-page graphic novel and snuck it onto the shelves of one of the branches of the Ada Community Library in Boise, Idaho, right after Christmas. He had wanted to write a graphic novel since he was five years old. According to the New York Times, after Dylan confessed to his parents, they told the librarians there about the stunt, but they were so charmed by the book, they added it to the library's catalog, and 56 people were on the waiting list to check it out. The book is about Dylan's time-traveling adventures around Christmas, spelled C-R-I-S-M-I-S, after the star on top of the family's Christmas tree explodes. Dylan already has his next book plan. It will be called The Jacket-Eating Closet. The Wayland Free Public Library in Massachusetts became wrapped up in a mystery so big it wound up as a joke on the Stephen Colbert show. Seems that library director Sandy Raymond found a baked potato in the library's front yard while taking her daily walk one day. The next day, she found another. The library posted about the potatoes on Facebook, asking if anyone had an answer to the mystery. No one did, not even Colbert, who spent two and a half minutes riffing on the potato incident, theorizing that perhaps Bigfoot had dropped them because no one has ever seen a picture of Bigfoot with a potato. Thanks for listening to Checked Out. You can learn more about Euclid Public Library by stopping by or going to our website, euclidlibrary.org.